Here's what it says in verse 23 through 25. Now, it was not written for his sake alone, speaking of Abraham, who was justified because of his faith in God's promise. It was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And some translations say, who delivered him up for our offenses and raised him up for our justification. The in that passage there is that this is something that God the Father has done for us through Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with individuals where they are, put it this way, if somebody can hit you with both ends of a stick, you know they're not being fair. You know, it doesn't matter which side you come at, they'll come at you and hit you with it. And, and people do that with God, and they oftentimes do it with this issue of the atonement. One idea is that God is this remote, angry being who is ready to vent his wrath upon us, and the Lord Jesus steps out, and he steps in the way, and he takes the suffering on our behalf in order to appease an angry God. God then is impugned by that kind of suggestion. If then you showed him a verse like this, and you say, oh, no, no, this passage says that God offered him up for our offenses. God brought him forward and offered his own son up for our offenses. They will say, well, there you are. There's a God who is a child abuser. He's venting his rage and wrath against us, against his son, and what loving God would do that? That's the other side of the argument. It doesn't matter which way you approach it. They're going to provide their criticism of these things. What they fail to understand is that the Bible reveals to us that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and God the Son were all a part of this. So in Hebrews, it also says that Jesus offered himself up through the Spirit. So here we see that the Father has offered up the Son, but there we see that Jesus himself offered himself up through the Spirit. They're both involved. Here it says that God raised him from the dead. In another place in the scriptures we read in Romans 8, 11, it speaks of the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. So here it's the Father who raises Jesus from the dead. In Romans 8, 11, it's the Holy Spirit who raises Jesus from the dead. And you'll remember that the Lord Jesus in John chapter 8 said that he had the power to lay down his own life. And if he had the power to lay it down, he had the power to take it up again. And there the Lord Jesus is raising himself up from the dead. What do we take from all that? This is the triune God. This is the triune God who's involved in our justification. This is the God who is holy in every way and has a just claim against our sins. And it needs to be dealt with. But it's also a God in love who orchestrated together that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons would give themselves, plan, lay out, purpose, carry out, fulfill our salvation. Now let's read then verses 1 and 2 here of Romans 5. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So it's through the Lord Jesus Christ that we're made right before God. Actually, this passage says it's through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are made right with God. It's faith to see that our Lord Jesus Christ has come to bear the punishment for our sins. It's faith to see that in Him is the one who has exhausted that punishment completely and perfectly, and having exhausted that punishment, rose again from the dead in order to stand in righteousness before God representing us. And we are righteous before God through our faith in Jesus Christ. I am justified, I am made right with God by reason of the righteousness of Jesus Christ 
and my trust and faith in him. This is mine through faith in what God has accomplished and what God has promised and what God has provided. So it is faith through Jesus Christ, but it's faith in God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the provision that he's made for me in my life. And now we come to these two verses, and what we see here is the objective that is gained by this justifying faith. What it is that this faith in Jesus Christ, or in God, for the provision he's made for us in Jesus Christ, what we acquire as a result of that, and here we see three things. First, it says we have peace with God. Second, it says we gain access into God's outpoured grace. You might say that we gain access through this faith into all of the riches and all of the benefits that are poured out in the salvation that God has opened up for us in Jesus Christ. And third, it says here, we gain a joyful stability or a joyful standing from which we look to the future, even in the midst of trials and difficulties with joy and hope. And all this comes to us because of our faith, this justifying faith that we've had in God through Jesus Christ. Today what I want to do is I simply want to consider this notion of peace with God. And So we're going to make a number of observations here. And the first observation we're going to make is this. Just note this. That peace with God comes first in the list that we just read. In the three things that we've obtained or we've acquired. And the first one is peace with God. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a wonderful way of emphasizing particularly this truth. He preached on the book of Romans for seven years. I'm not going to do that to you. For seven years he preached. But in this passage here, he emphasizes this one point right from the start. We have to appreciate and understand that this one comes first. It's important that we put this one first because if we don't put peace with God as the first thing acquired in saving faith, we will get the gospel wrong, and we will preach the gospel wrong, and we have preached the gospel wrong. Very often when we go to individuals, we preach to them all the good things that can be theirs if they believe in Jesus Christ. We preach to them the alleviation of all their stress and all their worries. We preach to them the unburdening, you might say, of their sins, the freedom to pursue their purpose in life, a sense of wholeness that comes upon them, a freedom from anxiety and worry and meaningless and purposelessness, a satisfaction that's given to them and a sense of relief or rest that can be theirs, this unburdening, as I said, from the weight of sin and self. All this is what we promise them as we're bringing the gospel to them. And all these things are well and good, but they're not the first thing that we're supposed to proclaim and they're not the first thing that we preach in the gospel. And they should not, if the gospel is truly understood, the first thing that's realized by the individual who embraces the gospel. I'm not saying these things aren't important because God has extended to us countless blessings through the salvation that comes to us through Jesus. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he with him also not freely give us all things? All blessings, all plenty, all riches are ours that come to us. And so, in fact, the truth is, not only is that wonderfully true, but there's also a very sad truth, which is that most believers live far beneath the benefits and blessings that God wants to pour out upon you through salvation. All the things that God wants to give you and all the graces he wants you to realize, many times we live impoverished spiritual lives. Because we don't know what is ours in Jesus Christ and through our faith in Jesus Christ. And so these things are important things. 
Not only this, we not only have opened up to us this riches of grace that are poured out to us, but also we're given the gift with it of eternal life. Not only these riches now, but riches that will extend on throughout all eternity. God gives us the blessing and benefit of His graces forevermore. We are raised up with Jesus Christ to conquer with Him over death and hell itself. This is too offered to us in the gospel. So to have the promise of unending life and ending glory and then blessings in this life, wonderful things. The problem is oftentimes we put those things first before we put the other things. And they're good, you know, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousands beside. That's wonderful. It's glorious. It's good. But none of these things can be gained. None of these things can be truly taken hold of until first the first matter is acquired and the first matter is provided for, which is peace with God. Peace with God. Before God can save you to all of those things, God has to save you from something. He must save you from himself, from his great wrath against you in your sin, from his justice which cannot be ignored and a justice that he cannot set aside. For God to be just, he must always act in justice and as such, your sins and my sins had to be justly addressed. And this is, by the way, the condition of lost men and women in their sins. Just look at verses 9 and 10 of this same passage, and let me read it to you. So 5, 9, and 10. Here's what we read. But much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. We're saved from wrath. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Just take note here. The salvation, this peace with God, was God doing something for us on our behalf when we were enemies with God. Colossians 1.21 puts it this way. You who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled. Do you see that? This peace with God has to change the state of our relationship with God before all these things can be poured out upon us. So that might be the second observation here. It's simply this. Please note it says, peace with God, not the peace of God. Peace with God, not the peace of God. Philippians 4 verse 7 says this. Paul pronounces a benediction over the people. He says, and the peace of God which passes understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. And he's pronouncing the peace of God over individuals. That's a psychological experience. That's the removal of the anxiety that we have and the worry and the concern and the weight that bears in upon us every single day. And God is promising that he gives us a peace that passes all understanding. And it comes to us through Jesus Christ. And that's the peace of God. That's a part of those all things that flow to us through salvation. But before the peace of God and from God can flow freely out upon your life and so that you experience this wholeness, first you have to find peace with God. You have to have peace with God and that's what is being emphasized here. That's what's being mentioned here. This justifying faith actually removes the barrier between you and God. It's done away with. The antagonism of God against your sins is dropped and your rebellious heart, which internally fights against God, comes to an end 
By faith you embrace the offering that God has given of himself to take away your sins and to remove from you by his own sacrifice the eternal punishment that you deserve from himself. There at the cross, the Son of God received in your place the outpouring of God's wrath and justice against sin. And in your saving faith at that moment in time, you acquire a new standing with God, between you and God. God is no longer your foe and You are no longer the object of his wrath. God has never not loved us. Never. But the outpouring of that love is inhibited. We can't receive it. Because before coming to Christ, the Bible says we're children who are by nature children of wrath, who are pursuing disobedience. In a sense, God can't pour out his love upon us because our backs are turned to him. Yet once we come to him in faith like this, The one who is our foe is now our friend and our father and all this through Jesus Christ. I think we need to think about this a little bit more. The fact is, you're not just a likable person that God was trying to figure out how to get on his side. We've been raised in an age in which we've been taught to think that there is no objective reason why anyone should feel any shame. We've been told basically the worst thing in life is to have a negative self-esteem, not to think positively of yourself. That's not a biblical doctrine. It's a vestige of some kind of poor pop psychology. We deserve God's repudiation because of our sin. We've earned by our sins his righteous indignation. We've seen that over and over again through Paul's writing to the Romans. The miracle is not that God has found a way to rescue good people from a bad end. The miracle is that God has found a way to snatch bad people from a just end by justly reconciling us to himself so that we could gain access to the outpouring of his love and his favor and his blessing, all of which he pours out on his own, all that comes to us in the experience of peace with God. That's reconciliation. That's this new relationship we've never enjoyed prior to that point in time. And what you'll see here in these three things that we observed in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 is that Paul is identifying not simply an objective realization that we realize by faith in Jesus Christ. Justification is by itself an objective realization. It means that God has taken all of my sins, placed it on Christ, and in that place God has covered me with all of Christ's righteousness. And that's an objective reality. I don't always see it. I take that by faith. But here in this passage, what's being told to us are what are, in a sense, the experiences that come to us out of that faith and that wonderful objective reality of what Christ has done. And the first experience is this. We feel that we are at peace with God. There's a sense that comes over us that now things are settled between God and I and we're at peace with Him. And then out of that, we find ourselves gaining access to an outpouring of God's grace and benefits that cause us great rejoicing even in the face of all the trials of life. Those are experiences. They're things to be experienced. They're evidences, you might say, that we've given our life to Jesus Christ. In fact, I think to some extent, you know, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, that we're to test ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. Or don't you know that Christ is in you unless you fail the test? See the back of the church here, a little book, the yellow book that's been written where I wrote a book about that topic called Saving Evangelicals. I encourage you to get it and read it. And I encourage you to share it with anyone else. You can take one up for free and give it to everyone. 
But here's another thing you can test yourself for. Here's another experience you might say in saving faith that you can test yourself for that's a subjective experience. It's the sensation or awareness that you're at peace with God. Not just the peace of God. Not God just coming to give you a better frame of mind. Not God just coming to make you feel good about your day or about yourself, but peace with him between you and God. Let's look at this as a third observation here. Saving faith produces this foundational experience of peace with God. And as I've said before, not the peace of God. Again, this is not comfort in the midst of trials. This is not a sense of tranquility that comes in the eye of a storm that you're in the midst of. Those are all good things, but they're not the first thing. The first thing is this awareness that you're no longer at odds with the great God of all being and all truth and all holiness and all justice and all righteousness. That you're no longer uncomfortable before him. It's a conviction that he is no longer angry at you in your sin. It's the understanding in a moment that the weight of his judgment against you has been removed and in its place he's come to you with friendship and love and blessing and benefit. I believe it's possible that there are many professing Christians who have never known this experience of peace with God. They've professed faith in Him, but they can never give testament to having known this experience of peace with God. They don't have the assurance of that peace because they've convinced themselves that God has never really been against them at all. They have a view of God as kind of a a jolly, eternally positive heart that only wants them to see how much he really loves them and how much he's always cared for them and how he's always been on their side. Their salvation is simply waking up to the sunny side of life, finding that God has always been there in their corner and they've just had a stinky attitude about themselves. He's always been there for them. I'm not saying in that moment there's not some sense of enlightenment or relief, some relief of some basic burden they've had because they've been hard on themselves all their lives. But I'll suggest to you that it's not anything near to the sense of relief when you know the hostility between you and a holy God has come to an end. It's nothing like coming out of the foxhole of your sin and your rebellion and your antagonism against God and falling at his feet and finding that he receives you with forgiveness and love and he draws you up into his arms and you're right with him, and you're in a relationship with him, and he's drawn away all his wrath and set it somewhere else upon himself in your place. Now then you have peace with God, and this is wonderful and profound, and it sweeps over your life. This is what's being addressed here. This is what God is talking about. The end of all that hostility, the moment in which I saw that all my life I had been resisting him all the time that I was even feeling poorly about myself. I was exalting myself. I was thinking that I was my own worst enemy. And I didn't realize I was an enemy of God. And God was against me in my sin. But God loved me and God gave himself for me and God died in order that I might be reconciled to him. And in that moment, oh, when that comes, the overwhelming sense of calm and peace, the joy and the blessing being right with God, not just comfortable in your skin, not just right with yourself, not having a better perspective on life, but being right with the holy God. Oh, when that happens, how he grabs hold of you and clings to you. A person 
can have sins in their life and they can hide those sins from others and they may have experienced times when those sins are about ready to be revealed or they suspect they are. You know those things that they've hidden they don't want anybody else to know? Some thought that's stole away in their life? Some sin that they're perpetually going back to that no one knows about? And then the time comes when they realize that it's a very real possibility that all of a sudden those they care about or those that are able to enforce some penalty against them are about to find out what they've been doing. And in that moment, and by the way, I can speak from experience like this. You know when you were a child and you just knew you were doing something you didn't, which shouldn't have been doing and then there was a foot at the threshold of the door and it was coming quickly and it was too late for you to clean up, right? It was too late to hide and, and to put away what you're doing and the handle was at the door and your mother's voice could be heard behind it and in that moment, every bit of moisture wicked out of your body, you know? You've had that moment when you've just dried up the thought that you're about ready to be found out. Now, a lot of individuals will double down in those situations in order to try to cover it up with more outward performances because they're more concerned about the judgment that would come to them from their neighbor or their friends than they are about what it is that a holy God already knows about them in their lives. Somehow they think, they, these individuals, will hold this against me. But God, you know, God will roll with my punches. God will accept me. God will embrace me. He has to. He's a God who's just on my side. They've never thought, they don't consider, the awful judgment that's standing before them from a holy God. And the Lord Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us, spoke about that day of judgment more than anyone else, more than any other prophet, more than all the prophets combined. In the Old Testament, Christ spoke more direct words to the individual about these things. He knew it was ahead. The truth is, is that when we recognize that God is against us in our sins, and this becomes a note in our lives, we find the moisture wicking up from our being. We find a dryness that comes over our soul a sudden arid fear that sweeps over us in the heat. And then the moment when you find out that God knows and is ready to forgive you and cleanse you and make you right and has poured out his judgment upon himself. Oh, what an experience that is. What a wonderful experience that is. I had a gentleman who came to me a number of years ago. This is when I lived in Canada. And he confessed to me that he had committed adultery. His comment to me was, listen, I don't care what you tell me to do. You can tell me to do anything. But if you tell me to tell my wife, I would rather go to hell than tell my wife. So I said, well, then don't tell your wife. In fact, I forbid you to tell your wife. You're not to tell your wife or even unless I give you permission, you're not to tell your wife. Then I continued to meet with him for another few weeks. And we studied the nature of sin. We studied the nature of God and His holiness and God and His love and that sin ultimately was against God above everything else. We just went through the lesson very patiently, almost non-directional, just letting him look at the verses, asking questions. A month later, he came to my office. We were going to do another study and he said, you know, can I please tell my wife? Can I please tell my wife? He says, you know, last night, I was so overwhelmed with my sin before God. I wanted to climb up on the roof of my house I saw myself holding the edge of the chimney in my house and screaming out over my neighborhood, I'm an adulterer, I'm an adulterer, I'm an adulterer. Oh God, forgive me, I'm an adulterer. What does he realize now? 
something more at stake. Just being found out by others. The great need of his life is to be right before God, be cleansed before God, and there's a God there that's ready to cleanse him and wash him. He was being dried up by his sins. We read Psalm 32 as our scripture reading. There in that passage in the old King James, David writes how his moisture was being drawn out of his very system into dust and dryness. Then God came and brought to him forgiveness. In that moment of forgiveness, he realized this re stated relationship with God in which it was as if David was gazing into the eyes of God and God was guiding him and directing him by his loving eyes into the future and there's joy and there's hope. That's what we're talking about here. Here's a fourth thing. This awareness of peace with God, this awareness of peace with God in the way that I've just described it, secures a person in the knowledge of God's love for him and for her you think God was just in your corner and he was just always there and just trying to figure out how to let you know it you won't really know or appreciate how deep his love is for you but if you'd know that God hated your sin and God was at enmity with you and you were an enemy of God and you were departed from him and you were a rival and a foe and you were deserving of his wrath and judgment God loved you still he pursued you and gave himself for you and called you to himself When you know that and you realize that, you are overwhelmed with his love for you. You exalt in his love for you. When you realize that, you sing like we sing, how can I help but love him when he loved me so? Right? You say, my God is reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear, he owns me as a child. I shall no longer fear with confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father cried. Something changes that's profound and deep that you'll never know otherwise. Now you have a tool to address those times when you sin because what Satan wants to do is Satan above everything else wants to drive a wedge between you and God. He wants to drive a wedge between you and God and he does it in two different ways. He does it by saying to you or coming to you and saying, let's say for example, you've given your life to Jesus Christ but you gave it on the bargain. If I gave my life to Jesus Christ, I'd have peace and I'd have plenty and I'd have satisfaction and I'd have a meaningful life and I wouldn't have all these sorrows and I wouldn't have all the self-doubt. I'd even get to go to heaven at the end of it, all these positive things. That's the proposal that was given to them. That's what they thought they were buying into when they gave their life to Christ. Satan comes along and says, hey, where's that peace of God? Where's that benefit? Where's that blessing? Where's that lack of concern and worry and self-doubt? Because you've got all that in space and your life's getting harder and God didn't deliver. And so he tries to drive a wedge between you. But if you know what God gave you above everything else is peace with God, you're right with the God of all creation and that God came and made you right when you were in the depth of your sin. There's such a confidence that you have even when you're going through trials. That's what Paul's going to talk about here. He said, well, even when you go through difficulties, even when you're filled with self-doubt, I'm right with God. I have peace with God. And Satan has a hard time driving a wedge between that. You see? You can't drive a wedge between that. And the other thing that happens is, the other time Satan comes here and tries to drive a wedge between us and God is when we do sin. Satan says, ah, you see, nothing's changed. You're just a sinner. You're not any better. You still do terrible things. And God will forsake you. You're back to where you were before. You're back in the same place. Woe is you. Just go on. Give it up and stop trying. But you know, wait. God found me in this sin before. God found me in that sin. God loved me in that sin. 
God gave his life for me in that sin. While I was an enemy, God gave his life for me in order that I might have peace with him. I'm at peace with him. And I can rest in him. And I can go to him. And he who spared not his own son, but gave him for us all, how shall he not with him freely give me all things? When I was an enemy, he did all that. Oh, my sin, my brokenness, my failure, my sliding back into fallenness and brokenness does not draw me away from a God who has made peace with me, who's made peace with me. Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about the struggle that we have with the flesh and the temptation of sin and how it seems to overcome us, how the enemy would come along in those moments and rub our nose and our failings and bring us back into a sense of condemnation, but Paul then realizes that he has peace with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul then says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I have peace with God. No condemnation. Our lives have been transported out of the condemnation of our flesh and fallenness. We now live in a spiritual life of attained reconciliation with God. What assurance is ours? We have peace with God. Let me ask you just some questions in conclusion as we just think this through and go no further than this. Do you know that kind of peace? Do you have the evidence or the testimony of a Christian life of a moment in time when what God poured out upon you, that kind of peace? One of the gentlemen that we interviewed in this uh, website that we developed called testyourtestimonies.com or you can go to savingevangelicals.com was a pastor by the name of Bruce Bruce, before he came to Christ, had grown up in an atheistic home. He said you know, he'd never even heard the gospel in his life. The only time that he'd ever engaged the church at any time was a, a pastor had come to his door, it was father's door, to, to share the gospel with the family. So his father walked the man back out on the street, pushing him with his finger in his chest all the way back on the street, didn't want to receive it. He grew up, was a young man. He was living with a woman, been living with her for a couple years. She got breast cancer and she ended up dying. And that was rather overwhelming to him because... He didn't know how to deal with that death. It struck him that he was going to die as well. He started thinking he had to find some answers for the fact that death was coming upon him. So he went to a used bookstore, and there he found a Bible, and he began to read a Bible. He thought, maybe there's something here for me. And as he was reading this Bible, he said it didn't help him because as he was reading a Bible, now he realized he's not only going to die, but when he dies, because he knew he was a sinner, he was going to go to hell. That was even worse. And he said it was so overwhelming to him that he tried to put it aside. He didn't want to read his Bible because he just couldn't handle it. It was too heavy a weight for him. And at the same time, he began drinking. He began to drink so much, eventually he had to quit his job because he would get up and he would have a six-pack of beer before he got up in the morning. He said, I would take a six-pack of beer into the shower with me before I begin my day. So overwhelmed with his sense of this judgment that was coming upon him. But ultimately, he could not keep away from that Bible he'd been reading because he knew something in it was true. If it was revealing what he was and what he was facing, it also had to reveal some answer for him. You don't just present the problem without giving some solution. So he kept going back to it, and as he was going back to it, he started reading and understanding that Jesus Christ had died for his sins. He read through all the Gospels. He got to the book of Acts. And he's reading the book of Acts where Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost that this one whom you crucified is Lord and Christ that says they were cut to the heart and said, what must we do? And they were told to repent and believe and be baptized. There's the solution. And he repented. 
and he believed. It actually said the very next thing he did is he ran and got a phone book, and the first thing is he turned the phone book to the church page, and he found a big advertisement for a church that it said they were Baptists. He said, well, they must know what baptism is, but it says I'm supposed to do this. I'll call them and say, I need to go to your church. I need to be baptized. Eventually he was. But the moment that came to him, the great relief, having been weighed in upon for over a year of being at peace with God. For me, it wasn't anything dramatic like that. I grew up in a Christian family. I was a good boy most of the time, right? I thought I was a good boy. Some of the time. Part of the time. Every once in a while. But a day had to come when God showed me my sin and that he was opposed to it. And that my sin stood before me like the gates of hell. And I cried out to him. And I gained in that moment peace with God. Not just the peace of my convictions and the peace that I have of superior religious belief or faith. Peace with God. Do you know that? Have you experienced that? Have you ever felt that God was once your foe and is now your friend? Rachel Bonner wrote a song. We're going to sing it in just a moment. He said, I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. Have you ever felt the unburdening of the accursed load of your sins? Something God was against. Something that brought God's judgment upon you. Have you ever turned in faith to the Lord Jesus to take away that load from your lives? If you have, then you know exactly what Paul means when he says that now we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. If that was an objective that you don't even come close to attaining in your profess faith in Jesus Christ, then I would encourage you that you start right here. You say something like this. God, reveal to me your anger against my sins. Let me see them as something more than a social embarrassment or a blemish on my character or an imposition in my relationships with others. Let me see them as you see them and see with them the justice of your own wrath against them. Let me know the accursed load so I may find joy, the joy, in being right with you through Jesus Christ who bore that load on my behalf so that I may know the joy of gaining peace with you. Oh, awesome and holy God. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. What we want extolled and highlighted and underscored, oh God, in our life, what we want and invite from you, Holy Spirit, is the outpouring realization of the love of God poured out upon us. What you want for us who believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, is such an abounding sense of true assurance of faith, not false, not based by making God something he's not, but coming before God and all that he's revealed himself to be 
and then yet finding such a deep and profound and settled assurance that we may go into your presence, O God, crying out, Abba, Father. Give us such a solid assurance and conviction of faith. Let us rest in it. Open up to us the pathways of understanding that we would know the depth of your love, that our eyes would be fixed upon you, and that we would be captured and enslaved by your love for us. We ask this in Jesus' name, for your glory and your honor. Amen.